you have your Bibles, go to verse 18 in chapter 2 of Revelation. This is the continuation of the teaching series, uh, less preaching, more teaching, because the thing with any letter, if you've ever received a letter, have you ever received a letter from a friend or from a very personal friend? Um, the reality of a letter is when you actually receive one, you don't rush through a letter. You take the time to read that letter. You look at the details of that letter. You reread that letter over and over again until you receive the fullness of what is being said from that person that loves you. And so we see these letters written by Christ himself. And we do not want to rush through these letters. We want to take it word by word. We want to be able to receive the fullness of what he's saying. And that's why we're here. Because we want to know what Christ is looking for in a church. These are the letters given to the churches including this church and all the churches of all the ages, concerning what Christ wants in his people. And that's important because more and more are we trying to figure this thing on our own and think what we have in mind concerning the church and the body of Christ in the local body and in the universal body is right. But we must submit to the word of God. And so whatever we see Christ saying here, we have to, once again, bring it in our context and bring it to our own lives and so here we are with the church in Thyatira. We talked about three churches before this, and here we are in the fourth one. And we're going to read it. This is actually the longest letter written to all the different churches. And so I'm reading out of the ESV. I'm going to read the whole letter, and we're going to take it verse by verse. Here in verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast. Will you have until I come? The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray and ask for the Spirit to give us the ears to hear. Father, this is your word. We submit to the word of God. In an age of compromise, in an age where we are trying to put our own interpretation to the scriptures, help us hold on to what we have been given. Lord, make us a people who cherish your word and tremble at your word. Lord, show us what you are saying through this letter and how it relates to us today. We don't want to just be filled with information. Father, we ask that you give us revelation that brings transformation. This is what we are seeking from your word, Lord, because your word has the power to do it. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, who wrote... These words for himself, letters in red. Amen. Amen. Here we go. 
to the angel of the church in Thyatira. And we see and we know that there's a pattern with these letters that Jesus introduces himself with certain attributes. He gives commendation and then he brings condemnation and then he brings an opportunity for them to turn and to bring them to a place where they're in the fullness of the will of God. And so we see here him introducing himself for the first time in any of the letters, Jesus introduces himself as what? The words of the Son of God. The words of the Son of God. Jesus is introducing himself to this church as the Son of God. He is emphasizing his deity. He is emphasizing his authority. He is showing them and reminding them that he is God. And we might be wondering, why would Jesus introduce himself as the Son of God? Why would he want to emphasize right off the bat that he is the one who carries all authority? His word is final. His word stands. His word is what we go by. Why would he introduce himself this way? Well, because there's somebody in this church specifically that claims to be speaking on behalf of God and is not. And so Jesus is stepping in right away and saying, there's somebody in there who's calling themselves a prophetess, and I want to let you know that my word is final. It's my word that stands. And if anybody's saying something that contradicts my word, realize that I'm God and they're not. I am the Son of God. And then he goes on to pull two descriptions of what we see in Revelation 1. Who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is the reality of this introduction. It's not encouraging. It's not supposed to be encouraging. It's supposed to provoke a fear of God in the hearts of those who hear this. And remember, it is very likely that when this letter was given to the church, the messenger of the church, the elder of the church, would have read this letter to the congregation just like this. Hey, all right, church of Thyatira, let's get together. We got a, we got a letter from the elder, John. From our brother John, he's written something on behalf of the Jesus that we worship. And he would have gathered everybody and said, okay, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and uh, whose feet are like burnished bronze. And we know what these things mean because we talked about it a few weeks ago. That Jesus' eyes being like fire express the fact that he sees everything in the church. He sees everything in the church. He sees everything in our hearts. He sees everything that's being done in the dark. He sees everything that's being done in the open. He sees it all. Nothing is hidden. You can't hide behind your skin. You can't hide behind these walls. You can't hide behind you and another person whispering in a room and think that nobody else knows. He sees it all. It's his omnipresence that he is speaking of. And those eyes like fire... They pierce and they melt everything that might cover our motives, cover the things that nobody else sees. He sees it. There's, there's no point of trying to be fake. He sees it. We can fool one another, but we can never fool Jesus. Never. But then he speaks of his feet being like burnished bronze. That speaks of, that speaks of durability and strength. But the fact that they're burnished bronze also speaks of the fact that he is walking in the midst and he is willing to crush any sin that's found in his church. He will tread upon his enemies one day. That's the prophecy in Isaiah that he will himself. The earth is his footstool. And his enemies will one day bow at his feet. But those feet like burnished bronze will walk through his church in a sanctifying way. Just like in Deuteronomy when God himself says, I walk through the camp and my feet are holy. 
And so this introduction right off the bat is emphasizing on the holiness of God, on the judgment of God, on the discipline of God, on the fact that he sees all, he is God. He is promoting himself, elevating himself to his rightful place, but also for the minds of the believers because there's somebody in this church we're going to talk about that thinks that they have the authority to speak on behalf of God and just say whatever they want. But then he, once again, he commends them. He says what in verse 19? I know your works, I know your love, and faith and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So this is a church that was excelling in their Christ-honoring duties. They had love for one another. They cared for one another. They supplied the needs of one another. They had service. They went out to the community. They, they met needs of people. This was probably a very popular church. They were probably known in their neighborhoods because they were very active in their deeds. They had it all. They had the patient endurance. They kept going forward. They kept doing what they knew that Christ said to do. Take care of the poor and meet the needs of others. And all this social justice stuff was there. They were doing it. And what I find fascinating is how Christ commends them, not just in their works, but look what he says. And that your latter works exceed the first. Your latter works exceed the first. And this is something for us to understand, that Christ celebrates our growth in the faith. Christ celebrates and encourages that we grow in our Christ-honoring duties, that we grow in our works. And he wants that, and he measures that. And so the question that comes to my mind when I read something like this, in light of my own life, is am I growing in my acts of faith? Not in the quantity, not in the quantity, but in the quality. Do I have more love than I did last year for people? Love. Do I have more love for people? Am I more patient with people than I was last year? Do I have a zeal to represent Christ more than I did last year? Or am I staying on the same place? You know, there are a lot of people who have been saved for like 20 years and they stay the same place as they were in year one. And I think that's concerning because we love to measure things and that's perfectly fine. We measure our financial income. We measure our health and our bodies. We measure everything else. But once we come to measuring the things in the spirit, we go, oh, legalism. Why? You measure your strength. If you're serious about your body, you measure your intake of what you do in your body and how much all those different health stuff. You measure your income. You want to grow in that. You measure in this, you measure in that. But when it comes to spiritual realities, legalism it is only legalism and this is how you know if you are in a place of legalistic lifestyle and decision making if you want to grow in things for christ to gain his approval that's legalistic you're going to find yourself in bondage very quickly and that's not what christ is looking for if you're beating yourself up because you want to gain the approval of Christ by growing in the things that he's called you to do. That's not the motive. That's not the desire that Christ has for your life. It's not to gain his approval. It's to work from his approval. He already loves you regardless. Jesus paid it all. We sang about it. He lived a life that you and I could not live. He died the death that you and I deserve to die. And from that place, we say, you are so beautiful. You are so awesome. I long to reflect your character more and more. More and more. And this is the encouraging thing. If we take our spiritual lives seriously. Is that not only does Christ want us to grow in our faith. He supplies everything you need to do it. 
And so you don't have to do this, as Brother Peter was mentioning, you don't, we don't do this in our own strength. We don't overcome sin in our own strength. We don't look like Christ in our own strength. He gave you everything you needed to get to that place and to grow in that place. But it is vital to understand that we ought to grow and look more like Jesus as time goes by. That should be our ambition. That should be our ambition. In Psalms 92, it says that in verse 12, that the righteous, they flourish like the palm tree. They grow like the cedar of Lebanon. And it says in verse 14 that the righteous in their old age bear fruit. But there's an insight between those verses. They are planted in the house of the Lord. you got to get your roots in the right place if you want to grow. And as long as you're planted in the house of God, in the word of God, with the people of God, you will grow more and more like the cedar of Lebanon, stronger and taller, bearing more fruit. And so I read something like that, and we should read something like this and say, wow, Christ cares about my spiritual growth. Do I care about it as much as Christ does? And so we ought to pursue growth, and we ought to evaluate ourselves in our spiritual growth. If I still have unforgiveness in my heart, I'm not growing. If I'm still impatient with people the same way I was four years ago, if I'm still quick with anger, I got to grow. And Christ wants us to grow. Just like any father would want their kids to grow socially, physically, maturely. Our Heavenly Father wants the same for His spiritual children. We ought to pursue those things. And Christ celebrates those things. But wait. Because He quickly brings a strike and correction. Very quickly does He say something here. Yes, He celebrates our growth. And I want to even read 1 Thessalonians 4.1. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read this. This is what Paul says to the Thessalonian church. He says, We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive, receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing. So they were walking and pleasing God. They had a love for one another, for Christ. He says, just as you're doing, you're doing it. He's not saying they're not doing it. They are doing it. That you do so more and more. That you do so more and more. So we ought to, as we are, and we praise God for this community because we are growing. And only you know in your heart if you want to grow more to look more like Jesus. That's an ambition in your life. But we are urged to grow more and more. Don't settle. Don't say, I think I'm good right here. No, grow for more. There's more in Christ. There's more of your flesh to be taken over. Grow in Christ more and more. Don't do it for his approval. You will, you will hate your life. You will hate your life. And you will, a lot of people will end up turning on God because of that kind of mindset. But from that place of approval, just like you see any role model in your life, you say, I want to be like this person. It's effortless that you, you do it with joy. How much more Christ, the perfect one. But he brings striking, striking correction right off the bat here too. He says, I see your works. I, I see your service. I see your love. I see all these things that you're pursuing. The fact that you're growing in these things and these Christ-honoring duties and works. But this is so important. Your works, your service, your love for one another, your love for the lost, never justifies the tampering of God's word or any tolerance of sin. Your works, your service, how you reach out, how you reach in, 
that never justifies you tampering with God's word or you tolerating any sin. That's what he's saying here. And we're going to talk about this in a moment. And I find this significant because here we see a church that had the love, that had the works, that had the service, but they didn't have right teaching. But when we look at Ephesus, they had the right teaching, they had works too, but they were missing the love. You know where Christ wants us? He wants us right in the middle. He wants us to have pure doctrine, but exercising true love for Christ and for others. He doesn't want us to be in one extreme or the other. And so this is what he's doing here with Thyatira. He's trying to bring him to that balanced ground here. Because we're going to find out, just like we did with the other church two weeks ago, that Christ cares about teaching. He cares about doctrine. And just because we do good things, and this is so relevant for today, we're just waiting for it in the next few verses. We, we, we emphasize on these things to do, and those are important. But Christ cares about our holiness. So what does he say? But I have this against you. In verse 20, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. There's somebody in the church who's teaching and seducing who? The lost, the people of God my servants to perform sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, there's important things to notice about this. First thing is this, that there is a woman in here who's teaching. She has a teaching position some way, somehow. She got in there in a leadership position to teach these things. But the name is significant. Her name is Jezebel. And many people do not think that this was her literal name. You would not name your daughter Jezebel. That's like, in our context, somebody naming their son Judas. You just wouldn't do that for obvious reasons. And so it's very likely that this woman's name was not Jezebel. If it was Jezebel, that does not matter. What's important is that she had Jezebel-like qualities. And just like in Pergamum, Jesus relates the doctrine that they were teaching to Balaam all the way in the Old Testament. He's doing the same thing here with this teacher, going all the way to the Old Testament to relate to Jezebel. And some would say this is the Spirit of Jezebel. But he's saying there's one like Jezebel, or there is somebody who's named Jezebel in your church. Who was Jezebel? This is important to know. If he's giving the name Jezebel, this is so significant. You don't have to turn there. If you want to turn there, I'm just going to speak with the context of 1 Kings 16. This is when we're introduced to Jezebel in the Old Testament. Up to this point, King Ahab became king of Israel, and he married a foreign woman a daughter of the king of the, uh, of the Sidonians, and she was a worshiper of Baal. She worshiped Baal. And because he married her, King Ahab, she was a major influence for the spread of the worship of Baal and Asherah in Israel. In fact, it was so significant, it was so influential, that in 1 Kings 16, verse 33, it says this, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. This Jezebel so provoked God that he makes this statement that all the kings before Ahab 
have not angered me like you have. Jezebel did everything she could to eradicate the prophets of God in Israel. She did everything she could to eliminate the worship of Baal in Israel. And she was so fierce, she was so powerful, she was so influential that the prophets of God were hiding in caves. She was literally slaughtering any person that spoke on behalf of God. She was a witch. She was evil. She was wicked. In fact, you go to 1 Kings 21. One day Ahab is walking to his palace and he sees this vineyard by a man named Naboth. And Ahab looks at the vineyard and says, Hey, I'm willing to pay that whatever you want for that vineyard. And, and Naboth, because he's honoring the law in the Old Testament, knows that this is an inheritance from his fathers and he's supposed to give it to his own descendants. He says, I can't give it to you. I'm sorry, I'm honoring God's word. You know what Ahab does? Because he's a big baby. He goes upstairs and he sulks. And he goes into his room, into his palace, and he lays in his bed and he's whining. And in comes Jezebel, his wife. She says, what's your problem? Why are you sulking? Why aren't you eating anything? Well, Naboth doesn't want to give me his vineyard and I want it so bad. So you know what Jezebel does? Because she's wearing the pants in the relationship, really. I'll take care of it. So she goes, she, she gets a fast going, this fast, and she makes Naboth the head of the fast, and she gets two false witnesses to say that Naboth cursed God and the king. And so what happened? They stone him. They stone him. She comes back up to Ahab and says, he's dead, the vineyard's yours. Christ is relating this teacher to that kind of a woman in the Old Testament. And so he says, there's a woman in there named Jezebel. And in the Old Testament, what we have to understand is that she was controlling. She was evil. She was wicked. She was persuasive. She was influential. She was possessed with a vicious ambition to turn people away from the true and living God to her own false God. She was vicious. And she took that leadership position over her own husband as the king of Israel. And the Jezebel in the Old Testament is very similar to the Jezebel in the New Testament here in this text. She found herself in a leadership position in the church, and she was leading the people of God away from the truths of God to her own interpretation. And so now the question is, what was she teaching? What was she teaching the servants of God for her to inherit the reputation of Jezebel? It's very similar to the doctrine of Balaam that we read in the church of Pergamum. But the background of Thyatira, the historical context can give us a little bit of insight of what platform she was given in order for her to say these kind of things. In Thyatira, historically speaking, it was a center of trade guilds. It was a place where there were many businesses. It was a business-like town. And it was known for wool and dye. We even know this from Acts 16 when Paul sees Lydia and it says there in Acts 16 that Lydia was from the city of Thyatira and she was a, a seller of purple goods and a worshiper of God. And so that's even an insight into the historical context that Thyatira was a business town. People would come from different places to buy and sell. But what was interesting with these trade guilds is that they took the worship of specific gods very seriously. Each trade guild would worship a specific type of god. And they would hold periodically worship festivals from time to time 
because they believed that if they worshiped these gods, they would bless their business, they would bless their lives, and so they would hold these festivals. And these festivals, obviously, because it's pagan, would eventually lead to drunkenness and sexual immorality. They were work parties, so to speak. But they were even more than that. Because they, they held so dearly to the belief that these gods would bless their business. And so if you were a part of that trade guild, you had to show up to the festival. If you did not show up to the festival, you were at risk of being persecuted and very likely to be fired from your job. And so Lydia, women like Lydia, but this is way after that, people that were Christians in Thyatira were faced with that danger. They were working for these different trade guilds and they were worshiping these false gods and the pressure was if you want to keep your job, you better come and worship or you're going to lose your job and you're not going to be able to feed your family. You're not going to be able to feed your kids. And so it's very likely that this Jezebel used that as a platform for her teaching. She comes in with this idea now, just like the doctrine of Balaam, just like the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, you can sin because of God's grace. Antinomianism. You can just do this. The flesh is separate from the body. You can sin with your body because your spirit is saved. And she would go on with that platform. You don't want to lose your job, do you? You have a family to feed. You don't want that reputation. And the mixture of the pressure from losing your job and being persecuted and this false teaching eventually brought the servants of God to perform those deeds in those specific trade deals and to live that kind of compromising lifestyle. And so the, the link to the Jezebel type is in the fact that she influenced the people of God to turn away from the truths of God, being holy unto the Lord, and convincing them you can do good deeds and still live a certain way. Isn't this very similar to Pergamum? This shows how Christ is very concerned about this kind of thinking. And so now, Jesus is not too pleased with this. And just like in the Old Testament, how Jezebel was gaining much ground. Oh, she was, she was gaining much ground. I think there's a certain insight in the Old Testament that we need to grasp in order for us to understand even this context. Though Christ doesn't necessarily mention this specific person, it's, it's good to make the parallel almost because though there was a Jezebel in the Old Testament, there was also another person that's very significant. Just one chapter after 1 Kings 16. A man by the name of Elijah. Elijah, prophet of God. And Elijah stood against the compromise that was in his nation. He stood against Jezebel and King Ahab and all the other false prophets. In fact, Elijah gained the nickname from King Ahab, you troubler of Israel. Isn't that amazing? Who was really bringing the trouble, Elijah or Ahab? The way people are so deceived in their thinking, you troubler of Israel. Elijah's like, I'm the one bringing trouble? You're the one that's leading the nation astray. But it would be nice to have some troublers of Israel in our day too, I'll be honest. Shake things up a little bit. And here's Elijah in 1 Kings 18. He's on Mount Carmel. He's like, all right, let's just get this over with and see who's the true and living God. You bring your false prophets. I'll come. We'll worship and see who God re responds by fire. But give me a second here. I just got to talk to a few people because all the nation of Israel was there. He says, hold on, false prophets. Hey, nation of Israel, I have a question for you. How long are you going to be going between two opinions? 
If Baal be Baal, serve Baal. If God be God, then serve God. But don't sit on the fence any longer. You know what the nation of Israel did? They didn't answer. It's like, forget it. Elijah was willing to stand alone, and he did stand alone. Fire comes down from heaven, but Elijah, just like any man, was quickly discouraged because when you stand for something alone, it's very hard to do so for a long time. So he runs into the wilderness, borderline suicidal. God visits him and encourages him. And Elijah calls out to God and says, God, I've been jealous for your name. I'm standing for you here. I'm trying to do the right thing in a society that's compromising, where people are buying into this false teaching and going to Baal worship and worshiping at Asherah poles. And I'm the only one. And he says that more than once. I'm the only one. And sometimes that's how we feel. Maybe that's how you feel when you hold to the word of God in a school that might be compromising, in a society that might be compromising, in friendships that are compromising, though bearing the name of Christ. And we feel like that we're the only one. We feel like we're crazy. I was just talking to somebody yesterday. I felt like, I, I see what I see here, and it seems like nobody gets it. And they were genuinely broken. And sometimes we feel like that. And thank God for a community where we can run this race together, taking the whole counsel of God seriously. But guys, there are people out there that are doing this, but they feel like they're alone. And in your workplace, you might feel alone. And once again, in your school, you might feel alone. Whatever context you're coming from, you might feel alone. And we might voice that to God, but you know what God said to Elijah? He says, you, you might be, feel like you're alone, but there are 7,000 other prophets that have not bowed the knee nor kissed Baal. You might not see them, but they're out there. And so sometimes we might feel like we're the only ones that are pursuing the things of God, righteousness and holiness, but there are other pockets of people out there that are doing the same thing. They're out there. Don't feel like you're crazy. Because there is pressure from where you guys are coming from, from where, all, where we're all coming from, to dilute the word of God and to conform to the norms of the society in a very persuasive way. Thyatira's context was different, but the persuasion is still the same. You want to blend in, you want to come off offensive. The word of God is, it's, it's God's still speaking. There's this new thing going around, God's still speaking. What a stupid term. He spoke, and we submit to the word of God. God's still speaking, so we can change whatever he says. Be careful with that. Remain like Elijah. Remain like those prophets. That, yeah, they're hidden. We might not be able to see them, but they're out there. There are people that are holding to the word of God. There are people that are believing for greater things for this nation. We've got to believe that and be encouraged by that. So we move on here. She's seducing my servants. And in verse 22, look what he says. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. Let's go to verse 21, actually. This is important. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. Hold on here. Because we've been emphasizing a lot on God's standard of holiness and righteousness and judgment and discipline. But look what he says here in verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. This is the grace of God. We see that, right? We're not talking about somebody who's struggling in sexual sin. We're talking about somebody that's teaching 
and justifying sexual sin and eating food sacrificed to idols. And you know what Christ says? I'm willing to forgive you. If we're honest with ourselves, if you're very zealous for God, if we hear of this kind of stuff, we're quickly to judge and condemn and say, no more chances. This is a false teacher. A false teacher. And Jesus says, not only am I giving her the opportunity to repent now, this is not my first time warning her. I've warned her before and I've gave her the opportunity to repent of her sins, yet she has refused. This speaks of the depth of the grace of God. You can be teaching falsehood, and I wouldn't recommend it. But you can be teaching false things, and Christ is still saying, I'm willing to forgive you. Just stop what you're doing. Repent. Turn back to my standard, my word, what I'm saying. Just think of the depth of the grace of God in that. Leading my servants astray, and he's saying, I'm still willing to forgive you. But here's the reality with the grace of God, because we need a balanced view of it. Yes, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter the, the, the things that she's doing. The Christians in the church were saying, this is the depths of Satan. And, and, and Jesus said, I'm willing to forgive you. Just stop. I'm extending my hand of grace here. So there's no wickedness too deep. There's no sin too black for Christ not to forgive and to turn around. But, but... There is a line, there is a line in this lifetime that people can cross where they seal their fate for judgment. So we need a balanced view here. We need the Romans 2, 4 to 5, 3 to 5 even. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? We love that verse, right? We need to read the next verse. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Isn't context important? God's kindness is me meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, because you're not responding to his kindness, all you're doing is storing up on your account more wrath for God to be pouring out on you on the day of judgment. Balance. And so there is this line in this lifetime, and this is the scary part about this line, it's invisible. There is a line in this lifetime that if one refuses to repent after much conviction, and like I said, it's invisible, so we don't know how many times God convicts. God doesn't say, I convict the sinner 70 times before he crosses that line. I convict the sinner 37 times before he crosses that line. And so we don't see that line. That's why preaching is so urgent. And that's why we ask people to respond immediately, urgently, stop, turn, today's the day of salvation. Because you don't know. God can convict you twice, you say no, and you cross that line. Say, I don't like that. God is so righteous and holy, he has every right to throw us all into hell. If not for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have no right to rub our finger in God's face and say, that's not fair, God. He is more than fair. He's gracious to give us the opportunity to repent in the first place. There's that line in Proverbs 29.1 says, He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck. You know what it means to be a stiff neck? 
He called the Israelites stiff neck. You're not willing to bow. You're not willing to submit. You're stubborn. He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be destroyed beyond healing. And that is the line that this woman Jezebel is treading on now. That if she was not to repent from this warning, she's going to cross that line of judgment in this lifetime. Not the next lifetime, in this lifetime. So we see the grace of God and we also sense the warning here. Because look at verse 22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead. And so there's a play on words here. Here's this woman that's leading people into bed, so to speak. And Christ says, if you're going to lead people into bed, I'm going to kill you on a bed. You want to lure people into that? You want to falsely teach people that it's okay to live this kind of lifestyle? I'm going to kill you on the bed. He doesn't say what, but this is a violent sickness that he's saying here. I'm going to put you... Now, this is the scary part. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. Now, notice the word throw. You guys see the word throw? I will throw her into the sickbed. I will throw those who follow her ways into great tribulation. I find that significant because you know how Jezebel died in the Old Testament? She was thrown off a building. She was thrown off a tower and her blood splattered all over the walls and horses came and treaded upon her and the only thing that was left were her, some of her bones because the dogs ate her. Graphic, but that's how God sees sin. I will throw her into the sickbed and align your hearts to see how much Christ hates sin. And those who commit adultery with her. Now, I don't believe that this is talking about actual adultery, committing actual adultery. I believe what Christ is saying here is that those who adhere to her teachings are committing spiritual fornication with her. They're becoming one with her teaching when they're supposed to be completely mine. That's a significant perspective on how to see those who submit to other teachings. You're literally committing spiritual adultery. It's like cheating on God when we take his word and tamper with it. It's like cheating on the one who gave us the words of life when we mingle with other false doctrines. It's like fornication. It's like adultery. And so he's saying those who follow this teaching and are committing sexual immorality with her, I will also throw into great tribulation. Now he's not talking about the seven years of great tribulation. Once again, all he's saying is you're going you're to go through some hard times. Very difficult times. Things that you can avoid if you simply repent. And he's actually saying that it will lead you to death. All her children, those who sit under her teaching and are receiving from her as a father or a mother would pour into her children, will die. Will die. What? Why? What purpose? What's the motive for that? The next part. And all the churches, in verse 23, will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to you, each of you, according to your own works. 
I'm going to do this to show that you cannot live in a way in my church and teach certain things. Now, remember, we got to understand the context here. Christ is judging somebody who's teaching and justifying this kind of a lifestyle. It's a different story when you're struggling with sexual sin compared to somebody who's teaching and justifying sexual sin and eating food sacrificed to idols. That's the context here. You want to teach it? You want to promote it? You want to preach against holiness? How does this relate to our day? Because more and more, guys, and, and, and we have to pay attention to this, there is a great emphasis on social justice. We got we to gotta meet the needs of the poor, and we got to make sure that people know that Christ is not for one race, but he's for all races, and social justice, social justice, social justice. Yeah, let's get out there. Let's go and do the things that Christ told us to do. Christ cares about the poor. Christ cares about meeting the needs of people. Christ cares about refugees. Christ, you know what Christ also cares about? Your holiness. We need a balanced view. And this church did not have that. They were so into these things that they forgot about personal sanctification and being holy unto God. And that is a trend in our day. This is a growing trend in our day, in specifically with millennials in our generation. Yeah, social justice. Yeah, let's get out there and do those things. That's great, but you got to be concerned about your holiness, friend. Because Christ cares about it. And we see that. People doing awesome things, but they're living like the world. Be careful. Because that stuff is also convincing if you do not hold to the word of God. And so he says, I'm going to make an example here. If you want to go down that direction, I'm going to bring judgment because I am the master of this house. You are bearing my name in the end. And I want you to know this, that when I bring about this swift judgment, People will know that I search mind and heart. Nothing is hidden from me. I am active in my church today. I'm not some deity that's far away here, not knowing what's going on in my local churches. I know. And I'll make an example out of you. For what purpose? To promote the fear of God again in the people of God. We go to Acts chapter 5 because we think, well, this is an isolated incidence. You go to Acts chapter 5, and it was not about sexual sin. It was about people who thought that they could impress other people by lying to the Holy Spirit and saying, we sold everything and we're giving anything. What are their names? Giving everything, sold everything, and they're claiming to give everything? Ananias and Sapphira. And Peter says, guys, this church just, you know, it just started. The Holy Spirit just, I can't believe you're lying to the Holy Spirit. Is this the amount that you gave? Yes. Struck dead. A few time later, we see the wife come in. just shows you how long their church service was. Hey, was it everything that you gave, you and your husband? Oh, yes, it was everything. I'm trying to impress people. How can you lie to the Holy Spirit? Struck dead. And you know what the result was in Acts 5.11? Great fear came upon the whole church and to all who heard these things. Christ was making a statement by bringing discipline to his own home to say this is not a game to mess with. So if Christ is doing it in the book of Acts, if Christ is doing it in the book of Revelation, do you think he can do it again today? He can't do it today. 
he's able to do it today. And that's why the last verse here is, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so those who teach these kind of things and those who love this kind of teaching need to be very, 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 very careful. But what does he say here in verse 24 as we conclude in a moment? But to the rest of you in Thyatira, hold a second, what? So this is not just a, it's not an entire church that's buying into this teaching. There's other people in the church that are holding on to the truth of God's word. There's a mix, there's a blend within one local assembly. So there's a division amongst the people. There are some who believe this kind of stuff, and there are others who are holding on to the truth of God's word. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who hold, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. So other people are buying into this, and other people are saying, this is the depths of the devil himself. So there's some people who have a biblical understanding, and other people who are falling to the pressures of this false teaching. And he's saying, there are some of you in here who are, who are judging this thing correctly. These are the deep things of Satan. Not the things of Satan, the deep things of Satan. From the very core and belly of his being comes this kind of teaching. So he says this, I do not lay on you any other burden. I'm not asking anything from you. I'm not asking you to do anything except one thing, and that's verse 25. Only hold fast what you have until I come. With the wave of different teachings that are going around in this day, and the winds of different doctrine that are blowing people back and forth, you know what you and I need to do more than anything? Hold on to this. Hold on to this with dear life. You interpret every aspect of your life and you become a master of this word. You get planted and rooted in this. Because more and more are we going to see growing trends of different philosophies and false ideas of what it means to live for Christ. Beware, beware, beware. Hold on to what has been given to you. This is the anchor for your soul. This is the anchor in which we need in the days where all these winds and waves are coming in this nation. Hold on to what you have until I come. And here's the reward. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over nations. What a promise that those who hold to the word of God, those who are anchored in these truths, those who despite even the closest people to them, are buying into false teaching and are buying into falsehood and hold on until the end, they will be given a responsibility in the millennium. They will be promoted because when you're faithful in this life with little, you'll be given much in the next. And the promotion is this, you will rule over nations. Say, what does that mean? Is that spiritual? No, it's literal. In the millennium, you will be given responsibility literally over nations. He will promote you and so the temptation is what? Well, here I am and I'm working in, in, in the background of Thyatra and I don't want to lose my job and I want, to, I want to have this right standing with people. And he says, instead of trying to be promoted in the eyes of men, I will promote you myself. 
Keep your eyes on eternity and know that I will give you something that this world will never give you and it will last for eternity. Hold on until the end and I will give you authority over nations. What a promise. What a promise. What a reward. Is it not enough that we ought to be holy unto him because he's precious to us and he's lovely to us and he deserves us to give him everything, including our sexual purity? But no, I will reward you and give you authority over nations. Fire me. I'm going to rule over nations one day. Not in a proud or arrogant way, but knowing that Christ himself will elevate me, fire me if you want, push me out if you want, throw me out if you want, I don't care. This is but a snippet in the glimpse of eternity. And he will rule with them and with an art. Rather, a rod of iron, as with earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So he's just saying here, I'm going to give you authority, as I've been given authority. And I love this part here. And I will give him the morning star. And people say, what does that mean? And there's so many different interpretations. But there's a nice verse here, and I want to read it in Revelation 22.16. Revelation 22.16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the what? Bright morning star. I'll give you myself. More precious than anything. Jesus, what a wonder you are. You are so pure. You are so kind. You shine like the bright morning star. I'll give you authority over nations. And I'm going to give you the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a very similar letter to the church of Pergamum. So how does this relate to us? Well, we know one, that Christ honors teaching. And Christ wants a balanced life in this Christian walk, that we do have pure doctrine, but we also have love for our neighbor, for our enemies, for him, for one another. We perform our deeds aligned to the word of God. We do not hold to either extreme. You can have doctrine, you can have all these things, but have a cold heart, and Christ is not looking for that. And you can be so active in society and in cultures and missions trips and social justice, and you're not living holy and that's dangerous. May we have a balanced walk with Christ through the understandings of these letters. Hear me. More and more, you're going to see millennials buy into this kind of stuff. Well, Jesus is about rights, and Jesus is about this, and Jesus is about that. That's all important, yes. But where's the emphasis on holiness again? Where's the emphasis on you being pure? We need the balance of both. So believers, if you were like Elijah in the midst of a Jezebel age and you feel like you're struggling in a time of waves and waves and waves of relativism, hold on to what's been given to you. There is a reward in the end. It doesn't matter what people say. Forget about it. Jesus will reward us for our faithfulness to his word. Let's pray.